Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word tonight, we pray that we might see your saving grace for each one of us through this Passover celebration. Amen. Well, good evening, saints. Good evening, saints. Paul uses this greetings in Ephesians as he greets the followers of Jesus. And if we're followers of Jesus, if we're relying upon the death of Jesus for our salvation, then we're saints. So, good evening, saints. Hope you're good tonight, and I hope you come to praise God and to celebrate him in this, uh, in this communion service that we're having to us. Now, the Bible tells us that we have a loving God who wants a relationship with people. And we can see this in our Luke's passage that you've got in front of you tonight. And you might like to keep it open. But before we actually get into uh, Luke's Gospel, I want, to, uh, I want us together to look at the oneness of Scripture, the completeness of Scripture, that tells the story of how God saves his people and how God provides for people to come into a relationship with him. And for this to happen, I think, we do need to look at the Old Testament because that explains what Jesus is involved in in our reading tonight. And really, what we should have done, we shouldn't have had just one short reading from Exodus. We should have read something like 13 chapters, but of course, that is not practical. So let's go back into the story of this exodus. If you remember, I know a lot of you will remember it, but if you think about it, these children of Israel were in Egypt for something like 400 years, and uh, as uh, we read in Exodus 12, the last pharaoh was not a very nice guy with regards to them. He was exploitive, he was using them as slave labour. And then God came into the equation. Because God sent his servant Moses to go to uh, Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, well, who's your God that I should let my, your people go? So, so Moses said, well, we, I shall show you who our God is. And there was a series of miracles. But Pharaoh hardened his heart and he didn't let the people go. So we get to the point now of Exodus 12 where God says, okay, if that's the case, I'm going to pass judgment on the people of Egypt and their worship of foreign gods. So what did he do? He told the people what to do. He told them what the people of Israel had to do. He told them that there would be an angel of death that would pass over the land and the firstborn of the Egyptians would die. But to prevent that happening, the people of Israel had to sacrifice a lamb. They then had to paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their buildings. And then as the angel of death passed by, he would not visit those particular properties. That's my abbreviated version. Now, if you actually read that account, what I would suggest to you is there was actually no need for the blood on the doorposts. It wasn't magic. God didn't, God's angel didn't need this. God knew who lived in each house. He is God eternal. 
But the act of sacrificing the lamb using the blood of the lamb was symbolic and the requirements of the people to paint the doorposts were given by God because it required of the people faith and obedience. They were told to do it. They had to believe that God would act as he said he would and it was a symbol of salvation which was to be remembered through the Passover festival as a reminder to them of God's provision because they were given instructions on how to celebrate the ceremony and they were given instructions to do it each year. So, this is where we come into the Passover celebration that we read of in Luke chapter 22, verse 7. We see in this passage the continuity of Scripture, the saving action of God for his people, and the nature of the saving, loving, holy God that we have and worship today. But we find further evidence of the continuity in Scripture and the prophetic statements made in some of the prophets. If you go to Jeremiah 31, for instance, verse 31, we read this. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by hand to lead them out of Egypt. And so this this prophetic word from Jeremiah points us towards Christ. And so it leads us nicely into the life of Christ as he was here on earth and his plan for salvation of the world. Now these words are so important that we've read in Luke 22 that they are in fact repeated four times in the other Gospels as well. So they're present in Matthew's Gospel, Mark and John in some sometimes slightly different versions. So you might like to look at Luke 22 now, verse 7, as we go through it together. So we see then, verse 7, is a reference to what happened in Exodus 12, the day of unleavened bread and the Passover lamb. And as we read the passage, we can see something of the nature of this living God through Jesus. Firstly, we see that Jesus looks back. He conforms and confirms the Old Testament practices. He was preparing to celebrate the Passover ceremony and celebrate the past saving action of God towards his people. But it also points forward towards his fulfilment of the prophetic word found in Jeremiah. It completes the sacrificial covenant set up by the Father. Because in this account we see Jesus as God, shown by the power of Jesus to be able to foresee and predict the actions of people within the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 10. Look what it says. It says this. The man in the city would be doing an unnatural activity. He would be carrying the jar of water. Now you might say, well, what's unusual about that? Well, it was unusual because it was only women in their society who carried water in jars. But Jesus states, there will be a man carrying water and he will lead you to the correct house for us to celebrate the Passover festival. Now, if you go into the commentators, you will read that some suggest that Jesus had made an arrangement with the house owner previously to allow them to use his room to celebrate the Passover festival. Well, even if this is the case, 
How did Jesus know that Peter and John, as they walked into the city, would meet a man carrying a jar who would lead them to the correct house? Surely this is truly a supernatural event and a prophetic insight. Evidence for us that Jesus had God's spirit within him and the fact is God himself. And Jesus maintains his prophetic word when he starts talking to his friends within that room. Look at verses 15 and 16. Jesus displays his love for the disciples. He wanted to share in this ceremony that celebrated the relationship that God had established with his people. But then he goes on to talk of the future. He says he won't be able to do that again before his death on the cross, which will fulfill the saving action of God seen in Exodus. So we see here then the link between these two events, both saving actions, both actions by God and not by mankind. God sets up the covenant relationship between God and his people on earth. It's God's activity. Now if you look at many religions and uh, many philosophies of life that are found in our world, you will find that many of them contain mankind's works towards meeting his God, through maybe sacrifices, through maybe ceremonies, or efforts on mankind's uh, behalf to try to provide a way of getting into a relationship with God. But here we see, and we saw it in the Old Testament, how it's God that sets up the covenant relationship with mankind. Jesus states prophetically in verse 18, I won't drink again the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus looks into the future and states he won't drink the fruit of the vine until God's kingdom is established here on earth. And how is this to happen? Well, it's to happen through Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection from the grave. He foreshadows this in verse 19, stating that his death would be for them. So participate in this meal, this ceremony, so that you remember my sacrifice for you. And this is repeated again in verse 20, at the end of the meal with the second cup. So there we have it. In this passage tonight, we read of this celebration meal where Jesus shows his love for his friends, marking the fulfillment of God's saving provision for all people here on earth, the death and resurrection of his son on the cross for our wrongdoing that separates us from God. And within Christian tradition and history, this passage has been made into a religious ceremony of various styles, from the very elaborate masses to the simple breaking of bread and passing around a cup of wine by the brethren assemblies and small groups of believers. This ceremony has been called different names by different groups of Christians. So we have the Holy Eucharist, the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread come to mind. But the common features of all these liturgies have been the words of Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. So why did he do it? Why did he set this up? Why was it necessary? And why is it included in the Gospels? Well, I believe that Jesus set this up because he knew, like God in the Old Testament times, that humanity is forgetful. Humanity needs help in worshipping God, who gave up all for him. 
So the Holy Communion was set up by Jesus to bring us together as faithful believing followers of Jesus, as people who rely upon Jesus' death on the cross for our relationship with God to be put right. So that we can remember and worship Jesus in thankfulness for all that he did for us. Now, that is the simple fact, I think. But we're not given any instructions in the New Testament as when we are to celebrate this meal together or how often. But Jesus just instructs his followers that they are to do this until he returns a second time to earth and sets up his kingdom here. But this is why, of course, this ceremony has been central to the worship of the Christian church throughout history whether that be in small groups of followers or many thousand from the time of the new church in Acts right down to our present age. It brings us together in unity. It brings us together in humility, remembering that we are all sinners. We are all unable to reach God. We're all equal and we're all dependent upon the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So we can come together in humble obedience to worship Jesus in thankfulness for what he has done for us. So that seems to me the simple message that is coming through this passage. But we must acknowledge that these sentences written in verse 19, for instance, have caused theological division across Christendom, causing division amongst God's children. This formed part of the Reformation Revolution that hit Europe in the 16th century. To the disciples, the taking and breaking and distribution of bread would have come as no surprise because it was of common practice within the Passover observation. So what then are the problems with these verses? Well, to put it simply, there is division as to what the word is of verse 19 meant. So as we read, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me, some would state that it means that the bread actually changes into the body of Christ. But the verb can mean various kinds kinds of identification, as we can see from such statements as, I am the door, I am the bread of life, that rock was Christ. In this case, identity cannot be in mind, for Jesus' body was physically present at the time he spoke those words. So it couldn't have been that bread. Another interpretation that is sometimes used is that the sense is, represents, or signifies, or conveys. Moffat, as one commentator says this. So we read the sentence as, the bread signifies or represents my bodies. The statement is, is very strong, but it mustn't be overpressed as to whether the body becomes the actual body of Christ or whether it's symbolic of his body and just used as a way of reminding us. Within verse 19, we also have the statement, which is given for you. It moves us on from the Passover celebration to the fact that Jesus' body was going to be given for all at Calvary on the cross. It speaks of deliverance and not vicarious sacrifice, but that Jesus is interpreting his death in a Passover context, a reference to the fact that Jesus is a suffering servant who as then covenant representative poured out his soul to death and bore the sins of many on the cross. Isaiah 53 is a reference. 
So the word saying, do this in remembrance of me, is not a pleading of Christ to the Father, but rather, lest we forget to help us remember Christ's death for us. And so I believe that verse 20 sums it all up. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The death on the cross And the blood of Jesus created a new covenant relationship with God. It's all about Jesus' death, isn't it? And his relationship, the shedding of his blood for us. It replaces the old covenant relationship found under the law of God in the Old Testament. And so the communion service indicates and inaugurates a redemption, a saving action by God, affected by the death of Jesus as a sacrifice. And this is the good news. This is the gospel message that we are given to share with the world that we live in. So then a question for you all is, how are we to respond this evening to this passage as we come to our communion service? Well, I believe there are four ways that we can actually respond to this passage. Firstly, I believe that we can acknowledge that there is nothing that we can do to earn this relationship with with the living God. We cannot earn the right to have a relationship with him. We can't set up a religious activity that will provide a way to God. And we can recognise that our wrongdoing separates us from a holy and righteous God. But secondly... We can recognise the loving nature of God and Jesus, that through his love for humanity, that Jesus has done it all on the cross. By his death on the cross, Jesus took the payment for our sin that separates us from God. Jesus took the punishment for our sin and was separated from his Father on the cross. But Jesus also overcame death by rising again and returning to his Father. And thirdly, therefore, because Jesus' sacrifice is complete, it is the good news that there is not one person in this world who lives a life that is so bad, who has done so much evil, that can't be washed away by the blood of Christ on the cross. And that's the great news. That's the liberating news. That's the news that changes lives. That's the news that causes people to come to Christ. It's a free gift given to all by Jesus, whoever comes to him, confessing their sin and believing that his death will take the punishment for it and so give them access to God. So that's the great news. So so lastly and fourthly, having said all of that, surely this will lead us to celebrate and thanksgiving, leading us to praise and worship of Jesus, both in song and in prayer and in the way we live our lives, but also to the desire to go out and share in this message with these that don't know this. We've seen something of this this week with the children here at the uh, holiday club. They were given the message that there was a loving Jesus who died for them. But of course, we don't just have to share this with people by speaking. It's not just by speaking the good news, but it's by sharing Jesus' love for all through the way we provide for the poor 
and the broken within the community that we live in. As we show practical love to people in the community, we demonstrate the loving action of Jesus who gave up all on that cross. In fact, the practical outworkings of this message will lead people to Jesus and his death for them. If you want to see where people from outside the church are coming to Jesus in large numbers, look for places where practical actions of helping the poor, healing the sick are taking place. I was hearing only a few weeks ago of a church in Northern Ireland which was growing at a fast rate as people were coming to know and to follow Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Intrigued by this, I looked at their church website It was full of practical work of their church in the community. In fact, there was so much going on that they're planning to build a whole new building just solely to bring all these practical actions under one roof. It combined also with going out into the city streets every week to pray for the healing of people, the physical, social and emotional healing. The church members believe that their God showed his love by dying on the cross and still works in supernatural ways through his Holy Spirit today. So how then should we approach our communion service tonight? Well, surely in humility, confessing our need for forgiveness, but also in praise and thanksgiving that we have a holy and righteous God that died on a cross to take the punishment for the sins of the world, renewed in hope, renewed in the desire to share this gift through practical actions and words to the people that we live with and meet with out there in the community. Amen.